2: Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com dot slash wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie dot slash wondery.
0: This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more. All on The Hash for your ears.
2: You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. It's The Hash on Coindesk TV. Maybe you're listening to us. And in that case, you're on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sinasi On today's show, we got Will Foxley, Adam B. Levine, And Zach Seward, who is doing a little dance in the corner over there. Zach, we're kicking it up right to you. There is an update with the Shanghai upgrade.
0: We're here for the technology, and we're here to provide you updates on the technology. Ethereum, the world's leading smart contract blockchain, is poised for a major upgrade known as Shanghai. And now we have an official date, April 12th. Now, Shanghai is the one that lets people who staked their ETH way back in December 2020 to finally withdraw that ETH, potentially leading some validators to pull their stake while also potentially inducing others to come in and commit their ETH to securing the newly proof of stake blockchain known as Ethereum. A lot of people speculating whether or not this is gonna impact price at all. I think some folks say maybe, some folks say not so much, but that's what we will discuss here on the show right now. Will, you uh, have had experience staking ETH back to the Beacon Chain way back when. Coindesk had an experiment around this in the early days. What do you think this is going to mean when these staked ETH can be withdrawn? You think we're going to see action there in terms of people cashing out?
3: Yeah, it's weird to think back on this. It was three years ago when the first update went live and you were able to push your stake on top of the Beacon Chain. The merge not even occurred at this point. So very long time ago, these people have been waiting for quite a while. If you are one of those early stakers, of course you could have been staking the last three years to that point. But if you're an early staker, you're pretty much ready to get out and get some cash. Uh, most of these stakers who were there earlier up over hundred percent in USD terms on top stake. For the people who were staking later, not necessarily in money at this point. According to some Dune Analytics dashboards, we have about between fifteen and thirty percent of people are only in the money if they were staking on top of Ethereum at this point. Because it takes a while to actually make money when you are staking. There is AP there. you can make some money, but it does take quite a while. That's why I'm thinking that there's actually not going to be like a huge amount of people withdrawing right now. I think people are going to continue to wait. Why pull out your ETH if you just put it in there recently and you are still getting very steady rewards? There's not a lot of other places to park Apple right now, right? Besides the traditional financial system. But if you're looking to park your crypto money somewhere else in the crypto ecosystem, like are DeFi yields really going to be that interesting to you? I mean, there's other places you can look for money, but for the most part, staking is a pretty attractive alternative right now. So I think people are going to hold their money. That being said, I think some of the early people who put their ETH in early days of this project are going to pull out and they're going to find a different place to park their ETH. Adam, up to you.
1: Yeah, so I don't want to declare victory too early with all of this stuff, but got to tell you, I think it is a pretty significant milestone as we move towards sort of this completion of the vision that was laid out several years ago and which has taken quite a while to manifest. You know, I think for every sort of person who did stake and has staked into the Ethereum blockchain during this time when that was essentially a one-way trip and you didn't really know if you were going to ever be able to get your tokens back. I think that now, again, like what this says to me is that for someone who's more risk averse like myself, there's actually a reason why I might choose to stake moving forward. Once you know that, hey, the whole system works, you can actually pull stuff out. It's also worth noting that when you're talking about like profit, it's kind of weird because we're talking about it in dollar terms, which means that the dollar price of the asset matters a lot. But if you're just looking at it in terms of ether, right, in terms of like somebody putting ether into the staking system and then receiving rewards, everybody is in the green on that. Everybody has more ether at this point if you were a sneaker on the early chain, irrespective of when you did it, you know, today than you did at that point. So it's kind of relative depending on how you want to look at it. The only other thing I'd mention is that we think that this is going to happen. we think that the Shanghai upgrade is going to allow this to, to kind of uh, come into reality. But until it actually manifests on the blockchain, that's what it is, is we think that this is going to happen and we expect that it's going to happen. And it's looking good like it's going to happen, but things can still go wrong. And I always like to keep that in mind just because after 10 years in crypto, you you see so many, so many promises, so many expectations go by the wayside, a well-intentioned. These problems are hard problems. And so respect all around on this one. Zach?
0: You know, you mentioned the certainty of, you know, being able to take these assets out. And I think, you know, I heard an interesting comment from Christine Kim, formerly of Coindesk, now a senior researcher over at Galaxy Digital, made these comments over on the, uh, the Laura Shin podcast. She said that that certainty may actually induce more institutional stakers to come into the fold, right? Okay. Assuming things go according to plan, as pointed out by Adam, there is a long history of some of these upgrades being just delayed or otherwise having issues. Assuming that it goes to plan, the ability for institutions to say, okay, I can put it in there and take it out there uh, at will rather than locking up for this indeterminate amount of time may actually induce more participation from the institutional side of uh, staking rather than some of the outflows that some people had been anticipating prior. So interesting, I think that you noted that, and it certainly is a big part of the calculus. Jen, I saw you. I want to get you in on this conversation. What do you think? What, what do you take, um, what's your take on Shanghai?
2: Well, both you, Zach, and Adam, kind of brought up what I was going to bring. You know, the history on these upgrades is kind of push and pull, right? We never know if it's going to happen until it actually happens. And so, Will, I saw your hand up. I guess my question to you as I pass it over to you for last thoughts is, what is the likelihood of this happening given the current ecosystem?
3: Yeah, I think it's pretty high. Uh, The Gorilla Testnet also just pushed this same update just on the Testnet version. It seems to be happening right now pretty well. There was a few hiccups, but nothing that really put anyone in danger. So it does seem like this is moving forward. Of course, they will pause it if they see some sort of needed change in the code. And then they always add like a, a buffer period in there just in case. To Adam's point, I do want to critique one thing really quick. Not everyone is in the money because you can't slash in this system. And there have been some people who've been slashed and ejected from the proof of stake network over the years. So there's a few unlucky souls out there, but a lot of them. Jen, I'll throw it to you for the next topic.
2: All right. We have an update on Signature Bank. It is on the market after being closed by regulators, but there's a caveat. The buyer of Signature must give up all crypto business. Now, Signature Bank's crypto clients accounted for a quarter of deposits, and the bank was reportedly under investigation by the DOJ and the SEC. Just yesterday, we chatted about this on the show. The New York Department of Financial Services rejected claims- that they took over to send an anti-crypto message, and they actually said they took over because they didn't have a lot of trust in leadership. Zach, I'm gonna toss this one off to you. An interesting update after yesterday's uh, comments.
0: The seeds of conspiracy further sown by this update. Okay. Very crazy news out of Signature. I remain fascinated by the Signature news, and I remain fascinated of Signature as an example being sort of the opposite of what has unfolded at like First Republic Bank. So anyway this is more fuel on that fire. Obviously, everyone in the crypto sector seems to think that banking regulators really are out to get them. The operation choke point has sort of morphed into operation guillotine or something. And so this little nugget here that, hey, even prospective buyers of this bank who should come in are being required to seed the crypto business that had come to define Signature Bank, uh, that is highly notable. Now, Signature Bank had other business lines, right? I think they you know, announced some months ago that they're trying to Divest, trying to diversify in terms of their client base. Crypto represents, to my knowledge, something like a quarter of their business. So the fact that even that is too much for banking regulators to handle gives further credence to some of these suspicions that are emerging, as voiced by Barney Frank and others, that this may have been motivated by something else other than the health of Signature's balance sheet. Pretty crazy. I don't know. What do you think, Will?
3: Yeah, I don't know. This is uh, popping all over crypto Twitter right now. And I think that we do we're not really in a different place than we were yesterday, right? Like, they might come back and the regulators are saying like, hey, we we didn't do this because we have an anti-crypto animus of some sort. That was sort of expected that they would say this. What does get interesting here is the fact that they said, hey, you cannot continue to operate Signet or any of these other crypto companies that you you were previously banking if you're going to buy Signature. And that really just eats in the whole conversation. Does these these government regulators in Washington, do they have an anti-crypto bent And that seems to point very strongly towards it. At the same time, Zach and Jen, what you said earlier a second ago, yes, they didn't really trust the leadership at that time. And it does seem like the deposits and the solvency of the bank was quickly collapsing going into last weekend, Friday especially. And that's what we saw with SVB and a lot of these other banks, right? The bank runs happened so fast. SVB lost $42 billion in deposits within something like 48 hours. Could have happened when I think The FDIC and other regulators were looking at this and being like, hey, we want to stop this from happening again. So there's an argument on both sides. But I really do think that like with that comment from the FDIC and other regulators that you you don't want you to be banking anyone in crypto anymore, you just gave so much ammunition to everyone who's a crypto fan and they're going to continue to attack this line of logic. Adam, I throw it up to you though, get your take on it.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, respect all around, but I got to say I'm done giving the benefit of the doubt to the regulators. The regulators never warrant the benefit of the doubt. Again, like any opportunity, like they're all coincidences, but they all happen to fall in one particular direction consistently every single time something like this happens. I mean, just look at the conditions that surrounded the closure of Signature versus Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank was shuttered on a Friday at the end of the day, which is pretty typical for the FDIC. They go in, they recapitalize the bank, they start selling off assets, Monday morning, they open up and people have access to their capital. Now, Signature was not closed on Friday. Signature looked fine going into Friday. And there's a lawsuit that was actually just filed by some of their shareholders who are like, were you lying to us? How, How could you possibly have been strong on Friday and now closed today? Which is an interesting question as it relates to this. So when you're looking at this though, there's two different things here. One is that When one of these banks tends to be closed, the bank, uh, the regulator that closes them will put out a press release that explains the reason why it needed to be closed. That didn't happen with Signature Bank, and that is unusual. The other side of it is that when they closed it, it was actually in the same press release as they announced the banking system backstop, that backstop every single bank, which means that they announced the closure of a bank at the same time that they announced a plan that will prevent any other closures. That is wildly unusual. Why would you not just have the signature bank fall under the plan that you're announcing at the same time you're announcing it's closing? It's bizarre and defies belief unless the assumption is that the point here wasn't to close a bank that actually needed closing but was to use sort of the fog of war and all of the concerns around the banking system stability as a way to do a thing that they wanted to do anyways, but couldn't really come up with the rationale to do so. So they just did it in this way where if you're paying attention, it looks really weird. But if you're a normal person, it's just like, oh, hey, that's another bank that failed. So again, like I I do not think these people warrant the benefit of the doubt. I think we'll see that in the last story that I'm covering today as well. They're acting in bad faith in ways that don't enhance security, And stability, but in fact, are exacerbating many of these problems to fulfill what seem like other purposes that they've already decided are important to them. So, uh, I wish you guys the best of luck with that. But that's where I am on this one.
2: Okay, I want to add one more thing to the story that we haven't chatted about this week about Signature Bank. There's a class action lawsuit filed against Signature Bank, claiming that the bank knew about and facilitated the FTX fraud. It claims that Signature Bank knew that there was commingling of funds. I need to caveat that it is a class action lawsuit. Anyone can file a lawsuit like this, but we haven't mentioned it on the show and we have to go to break. Zach?
0: Let's break. Calling all early stage crypto, blockchain and Web3 startups, teams and builders. Apply to Coindesk Pitchfest powered by Google Cloud and pitch live on stage at Consensus in Austin this April. Winners will receive two VIP Piranha Passes to Consensus 2024, featured coverage on Coindesk, and an invitation to present at Coindesk's Private Investor Summit, Ideas 2023. Learn more and apply at consensus.coindesk.com slash pitchfest.
3: And welcome back to The Hash. Okay, we're talking about the Fed now. We've had way too much talk about crypto in this show. So we got to talk about our overlords, the Federal Reserve, which are looking to launch now a banking program that they've been working on for the last few years. They debuted this mostly in 2020, and they've been tinkering with it. In July of 2023, they're going to launch this. It's essentially a payment program that will allow banks and others to move dollars through the Federal Reserve System very, very quickly. It's not quite a CBDC, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a second, but it's a step in that direction where you're able to move and settle and clear dollars very quickly through the financial system. For now, it's mainly going to be between the Federal Reserve and financial intermediaries that sign up for it like a banking partner. But in the future, it can be used for settling things as simple as a bill. Why would you use something like this? Well, you might want to have the backing of the Federal Reserve. You might not want to be trusting these banks right now. And I think the Fed has noticed this. They've been working on this program for quite a while. And it's kind of an inauspicious moment for it to launch. I really want to get your take on this. I want to see the tinfoil hat come out. I want to see it all.
1: Okay. I'll put on my tinfoil hat for you. So, I mean, when we're looking at a system like this, there's a couple of different things here. First off, people clearly want instant transactions, right? One of the things that's characterized our banking system though, is that it really is built on top of the commercial banks. Even the Federal Reserve actually has shareholders, which are the commercial banks, which is how it maintains its so-called independence from sort of the rest of the political financial, et cetera, system. Since sort of the beginning of the cryptocurrency era, we've seen this push to make it so that the traditional financial system actually works a lot closer to how the cryptocurrency systems work in terms of the speed by which you're able to make these types of transfers. I remember when I started talking about Bitcoin back in 2012, it used to take something like six days for a wire transfer to move from one place to another. And that wasn't because of technical limitations, that was because each of the banks sort of each day a different bank collects interest from essentially holding it overnight based on the overnight interest rate. And so there's a mismatch, not in terms of technical capabilities, but in terms of behavioral and sort of incentive stuff. Right? The banks don't have an incentive to move your money any faster than you are willing to tolerate because they can collect interest on that capital while it is in transit. And so we saw after Bitcoin came out and started demonstrating, people would say, oh, you could send a transfer in one day, in one hour then suddenly the banking system sped up a lot. (laughs) Uh, Within the next three years, we saw kind of this push towards that. And this is a continuation of trend for me. The interesting part about this is that, as you said, this is something that right now applies to banks, but it's something that there's not really a reason why it couldn't apply to normal people and couldn't apply to payment systems more broadly. The question is, does the US government, does the US sort of power structure want to support a commercial banking sector that has a lot of power, because they do in our system today. This seems like it's a step towards that not being as true, and it will be interesting to see how, how they attempt to navigate this as the regulators of these banks, keeping them happy, keeping them solvent, while at the same time allowing these systems to improve in ways that actually are kind of damaging to banks, at least according to their tra- traditional business model. So that's my take on it. Again, relatively minor story, but a continuation sort of, of trend that we've broadly seen here to date. Zach, what do you think?
0: I saw Jen. She had a, she had a spicy take, Bruin. I, I, I saw it. I saw it. So I'm tossing the her.
2: I'll go super quick and I'll throw it back to you, Zach, because you got the Mr. Burns hands going right now. And so I bet your take is even spicier. But my first take is why is it called Fed now? It sounds so much like the Fed came up with this name. Sounds so weird. I don't like it. Um, my, my more uh, nuanced take, I think, is that if we juxtapose this news with the news that we've spoken about previously on this show, with banks largely outside of North America experimenting with DeFi for this kind of like CFI DeFi future, this makes sense. And, and Adam, to your point, I think that this proves that the government is looking at what's going on, is looking at what consumers want from their banking services, and I think it shows that they are getting scared. And so this like Fed Now product, I understand it. The One thing that I um, kind of looked at with a skeptical eye was that some Fed officials said that the program could replace the need for a CBDC. I looked at this in a totally different light. I think this just paves the road for a CBDC. I think Fed now starts offering this service to commercial banks. Then, you know, like Adam described, regular everyday retail consumers can start using it for things like paying bills. I think it paves the road so nicely for a CBDC to be introduced in a really seamless way to drive people away from some of the offerings that crypto offer. Zach,
0: Yeah, I just wanted to comment on the kind of the crypto angle and I think it does kind of undercut what's emerging as you know a nice talking point for the crypto sector. You saw it uh, communicated, I thought, very capably in a Coinbase commercial about the existing system and these incumbent money systems being so high friction and taking so long in ways that the rest of our world has become so much quicker, right? So the idea that crypto is a solution to existing financial rails that can be quicker, that can provide instant settlement, that can provide some additional benefits, here is sort of blocked, I think, by Fed now rushing to deliver some of those same benefits that people, just normal people, find really frustrating with the financial system, right? In terms of, again, how long it takes to send money overseas, how costly that is, et cetera, et cetera. So if the Fed can sort of harness that energy and co-opt some of that energy, I feel like it does sort of undermine what is emerging as a really nice narrative piece for why blockchain technology can be a better settlement layer relative to the things that we have in the world today. So that's, I mean, sort of the interesting sort of like horse race aspect of it all. But I'll toss it to Adam for his last thoughts.
1: Yeah, just real quick. I mean, what do, uh, what do the traditional financial system and gold have in common? We use them because of tradition that doesn't really make sense anymore, right? If you look at the reason why people use bank accounts 20 years ago versus today, 20 years ago, you needed to have a bank account in order to really make any type of payments that didn't involve cash. What the Fed now system presents and what cryptocurrency presents and many other competing systems present is an alternative for how you could use money, how you could store your money and use your money without requiring a bank. And that is so existential to the fundamental business of banking as it exists today that it is hard to fathom. So this is actually a shot across the bow from the Federal Reserve. <laughs> Uh, You know, in contrast to sort of what we're talking about in the world of cryptocurrency. But again, it comes down to why do you have your money in a bank? Because we're used to it. It's not for the interest. It's not for anything else. Anyways, moving on. Our last story today deals with a billion dollar bid from Binance.us to buy Voyager Digital's assets out of bankruptcy. And the judge says that it should go ahead in a Wednesday court filing that I'll describe as oddly satisfying to at least this longtime industry observer. (laughs) In lengthy written comments, the judge recounted how the U.S. securities regulator is essentially trying to have its cake and eat it, too, by on the one hand arguing that Voyager token might be a security and that Binance U.S. might be an unregistered securities exchange, but on the other hand, emphasizing repeatedly that this was just potentially the opinion of SEC staff and that the commission wasn't going to comment at all, provide any arguments or any evidence in support of any of that. So the the SEC wanted the bankruptcy deal not to go forward because of these kind of hand wavy allegations that they had floated and then declined to provide anything. And happily, the judge recognized that the securities regulator essentially was asking for an impossible standard and politely declined to respect that as a reason not to go forward with the deal. So that's the story. And if one wants to assume good faith on the part of the SEC, I think the question really is, what were they thinking? What could possibly have been the argument for this type of approach in this situation? Jen?
2: Doesn't this just fit with how the SEC operates? Like can you blame them? This works for them in so many other facets of their business. They go in, they say something, we think this, we don't want to give that much information, and it just works. I really tip my hat to this judge for, you know, sticking to how the proceedings should work, sticking to the court's rulings and not allowing this case to be kind of pushed into a corner or or bullied by the regulators, Adam. I think that this comes back to that ulterior motive narrative that you were talking about earlier, right? Like what is the actual intent of the regulators who are trying to interject into this case? Are they actually looking out for retail at the end of the day, or are they looking out for themselves and and their own motives? Um, I want to touch on a point that came up previously on the show. We've been uncovering this story. Well, we've been talking about this story Um, almost every day now. The judge previously said if the DOJ or any government agency had evidence of misconduct specifically related to the bankruptcy, they should have presented it in court. And I think that that just makes sense, right? The government can't just come in at any other, at any point during the process and say, we're the government, we want this to happen. There are processes in place and they are very clear. And so I'm happy that this happened this way. Will, what do you think?
3: No, I definitely agree with you. I feel like there's been a lot of time for them to do something about this. I mean, we've had two different buyers for this Chapter 11 case, both FTX, and now Binance US, and then still these government agencies have not been able to move forward with anything substantive, right? We've had the DOJ, we've had SEC, and now this judge is coming through and saying, hey, no, like the bettors here, every day that they don't have the ability to sell any of their tokens are locked up in Voyager, they are harmed by this. So I, again, also applaud the judge, just like you said, And I think this is like a silver lining of the way that crypto can grow in the United States, right? There are different government bodies, and those government bodies uh, work against each other. There's a lot of friction there. And so I think a lot of people in crypto right now are looking at the judicial branch and saying, these guys might actually help us out, while the administrative bodies in the executive office have been antagonists towards crypto. Everyone in the administration, or even in the Trump administration, were very against crypto in some of their rulings. But I think some of these judges, they're looking at more of the precedent and they're looking for things to be done by a rule of law and precedent done in law. And they might be pro crypto, but I don't know. We'll see what
0: happens. Zach, to you. A win for due process, either way. It is interesting to see this unfold. And I think, you know, Will, you mentioned something interesting, right? You know, if the executive branch is going to be aggressively pursuing these things, sometimes with fairly flimsy footing, I think the crypto industry is rightly saying we need to focus our efforts on uh, the judicial, but really mostly on the legislative end of things, right? Where they can get the ear of some of these lawmakers and say, okay, here's, you know, again, the reason why crypto should exist in the US. Here's what crypto can provide to US consumers that is better than the existing financial system, while also protecting against some of the shortcomings and some of the outright fraud and scam that we've seen in the space over the last few years, right? So I think in terms of sort of like policymaking calculus, it seems as though most people in the crypto space. Are really focusing their efforts on the legislative side of things where they can talk to federal lawmakers and hopefully advance common sense policy in that context. Interesting to see for sure. All right. That's it for the show today. Let's shut it down, shall we? You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player.